So Eric Wanaselia is one of the best men I know. Back in uh, 2019, I was ready to quit. Like just completely walk away from ministry um, and make an honest living like most of you do. <laughs> um, I knew that if I didn't find someone to take over literally half of my job, I wasn't going to make it. Like I just had to get out of ministry. So I took a week to fast and pray and I asked the Lord, Lord, what do you want me to do? Like I really, I'm just ready to quit ministry and, and I've read the Bible, I know that you don't need me. Like Jesus says, I will build my church, it's his church, he'll build it with or without me. Should I just make an ex, a quiet exit for my own soul, for the sake of my family, or do you have something else in mind? And I sat there fasting, praying, and somewhere along the way I received this answer, Eric Wanaselia. Which, nothing against Eric, but at the time, that seemed like a ridiculous answer. <laughs> um, Eric had never worked in a church. Uh, he was a successful engineer. He would, just to come on staff at GVF, he would have to take something like a 50% cut in pay for the privilege of working with me. So I heard that, and I thought, maybe I'm not hearing God correctly. So I tested it. I, I went back and talked to my wife, Jenny, and was like, this is what I think I'm hearing. What do you think about that? And we, we talked about it and still unsure. I finally uh, set a time to meet with Eric at Starbucks and I just laid my cards on the table. I'm like, so I'm probably quitting ministry like for life. I'm probably done. But I prayed and fasted and I know this doesn't make any sense, but I just thought before I do that, I would take this and like throw it against the wall and see if it sticks, right? I prayed and I fasted and after a week of that, um, I'm pretty sure God said, Eric Wanaselia. I'm pretty sure God put your name in my mind. And um, I'm not sure it's God. Maybe it was just low blood sugar levels. <laughs> but I thought I would at least test this out because I'm pretty sure you're the only person in the world that I would trust to step into this role right now. And if you say no, I'm going to assume that God has given me permission to step out of ministry. Well, then this past March, we celebrated three years with Eric Wanaselia as GVF's executive director. So Eric Wanaselia is one of the best men I know, and I would not be in ministry without him. And I owe to him a deep debt of love. So I say with great respect, that man has some of the most boring hobbies of any human being I know. <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. Like, he's way too into, like, Lord of the Rings. You're like, oh. And, and he gets lost in, like, these 800-page Civil War histories. And my favorite, to make fun of, is bird watching. So, so I was planning our 20th anniversary getaway. Where, uh, this year, 20 years, we'll be married. So we're going to get away. And I, I was looking into what, what would capture that moment for us. And I, I, I literally looked into running with the bulls in Pamplona. Like, I looked into it, and it finds out, turns out it's a, like a big drunken mess. We don't want to be part of it. But still, that idea of running before a stampede of angry bulls through an ancient city, that's my idea of, like, that's what you should do in your time off. Eric, on the other hand, he can name every type of, like, starling, finch, chickadee, catbird, and wren in the environs of southeastern PA. 
Like, I imagine him out there, like, in his, you know, <laughs> pants too high, British explorer hat, binoculars in hand, making bird calls. Like, is that like a, a warbling thing? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so it pleased me to no end when earlier this spring, the psychologist at the University of Essex formally published their research on the world's most boring things to do. True, true story. And three of the top four go to bird watching, going to church, and mathematics, <laughs> which almost perfectly describes Eric. <laughs> so, so after I picked myself up off the floor laughing so hard, I was like, okay, okay, talk me through this. What do you find so enthralling about bird watching? Like, why is that how you find delight in life? And he, he um, get this, he, he describes to me this moment. He says, like, you're walking through the woods, and it's just a woods. It's just what we've all done before. But he said, there's absolutely nothing to see until you stop. Like, you really stop. Five minutes, sometimes more. And he said, suddenly, it's already been there the whole time, but you see it. This extraordinary life happening all around you that you can only see if you really stop. And I was like, wow, that is beautiful. I'm still going to make fun of you. <laughs> but at least now I get it. So let's, uh, let's go meta here for a second. Let's talk about what's happening between us right now. We're like, uh, I don't know, five minutes into my message here. I'm supposed to be preaching a sermon, but I just spent about five minutes telling you stories about bird watching and Eric. And some of you are likely thinking, like, can we please be done with the stories here? I came here so that you could teach us about life with God because you've been conditioned in your mind that it only counts as a sermon if you walk away from the sermon with, like, notes on the seven levels of nuance in the Hebrew word Shema. Don't worry, we're going to get there because I can't help myself. <laughs> Some of you are like, ah, can we please just hear stories on morning? It's Sunday morning. My life is hard. I want something easy, please. And then Eric is like, please, can the Sunday just end? <laughs> so why, why would I spend the time telling you these seemingly frivolous stories about bird watching when I'm supposed to be teaching you about the way of God? Hmm. <laughs> And this, this storytelling as teaching about the way of God, this is what Jesus does more often than not. Except that we call these um, parables. That's what we call these. These stories are called parables. They're those simple, confusing, humorous, cutting, encouraging, usually unexpected, usually unexplained stories that Jesus just plops out there. It comes from the Greek word parabole, which we talked about last week, which literally means to, um, to throw alongside, that Eugene Peterson describes it as a verbal object that Jesus just takes and drops out there, so you literally stumble over it, like you run into it, and you ask, like, what's that doing there? It's meant to slow you down. So last week, we explored how Jesus told these stories not to make things easier, mm -mm, but to make things harder, to force us to personally engage, that the parables are the way into life with God, and the way to get God's life into us, both. So there are these little roadblocks that Jesus tosses in our way to force us to stop. 
really stop and pay attention. So today, the fight, and that's the word there, the fight for your attention has turned into an all-out war. There's, there's a bounty placed upon it. And, and the world's largest companies are now fighting over it. They, they have um, unresting algorithms working around the clock, looking for little weaknesses, ways that they can capture your attention, harvest it, and sell it to the highest bidder. That's our global economy, the attention economy. It is hard to overstate how difficult it is to be freed from all distractions in our world today because our world is against you in every way, shape, or form. We collectively are losing our ability to focus. We are collectively losing our desire to focus we're just losing our focus. So I wish I wish I had some new technology. Be like, okay, now everyone pull out your VR goggles, and I'm going to get your attention. Or like, there's a pill. Do you take the red or the blue? Go see how deep this rabbit hole goes. But I don't. If I want to get your attention, all I have is what Jesus gave me, and that's some stories. But there's one story in particular that Jesus seems to want us to hear first. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all put this story, this particular story, as the story that leads into all the other stories. This is the parable that will introduce you to all the other parables in Luke chapter 8. Like this story is the entryway into Jesus' stories. You have to stop, really stop, and enter into this story if you hope to enter into what Jesus is doing in the parables. And the story, Luke chapter 8, goes like this. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, big crowd, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow a seed, and as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on. Birds ate it up. Some fell on the rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew grew up with it and choked the plants out. Still other seed fell on good soil, and it came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. And when he said this, he called out, literally cried out, shouted, whoever has ears, let him hear. Now this is the part of the sermon where I'm supposed to take what we just heard, break it into little bitty bits, and make it digestible for you. So, so you see, in the ancient Near East, the word farmer indicated a person who farmed. If you read the commentaries, not making this stuff up, there's a big debate. What, what is the farmer sowing? Most likely wheat. But there's actually considerable debate over whether ancient Palestinian farmers plowed um, before they, they sowed the seed or before and after they sowed the seed. I could actually read you four or five ancient sources that speak to this agricultural debate, if you feel better. But I am suspicious that you, like me, don't care. <laughs> you see, those kinds of details, they don't add much to our understanding. In fact, there is not a lot to understand in this story. This story is borderline simplistic. There's not a lot of action or intrigue. It's closer to bird watching than running with the bulls. So here's the story. All right, just to make sure we're on the same page. There's a farmer scattering seed. Seems pretty indiscriminately. Some falls on the path, that's the way that everyone walks every single day. Because it's the path, it's just the way that everyone walks. It's, it's pounded down, it's hard. No seed can break into it, so that all gets taken away by the birds. 
And then there's the rocky soil that looks like good soil, but, it, but just underneath the surface, it's one inch deep. The, the, the seed starts to go down and can have no root, so withers up in the sun. The third, it grows. It looks like a great plant, but it grows with the weeds and it never reaches maturity. It gets choked out. And then there's the good soil. That's it. Like I said, bird watching. But then, as if to punctuate the whole thing, as though Jesus just told us something really, really important, he, he cries out, he yells, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. As though if we just heard this story, if we just really took this in, if, if we had ears to hear what Jesus was saying in this story alone, that we would somehow have lives that bear a hundredfold fruit. So um, a couple of weeks ago, I was at a pastor's retreat, and I sit down for lunch with this group of guys, and Richard Foster sat at my table. Now, you likely have never heard of him. You couldn't pick him out of a crowd if you wanted to, probably. He's um, an old guy who dresses really frumpy with a long ponytail. Like, he, he, he's in that, cross that threshold in life where he literally no longer cares what anyone thinks. <laughs> it's really wonderfully freeing. It's... So like I said, if you bumped into him in a grocery store, you might be like, are you okay, old man? Can I help you with that? Right? This is who he is. But, but Richard Foster is about as close to a saint as you can find in our modern world. For the past 50 years, he's been living and teaching and working out how to do life with God. And he has quietly influenced, no exaggeration, millions upon millions you know what Richard Foster wanted to talk about over lunch? This tree. He said he's got this tree in his backyard. In fact, he likes this tree so much that he took a chair and he set it out there in front of the tree. And about for an hour a day, he'll go out there and just sit in front of the tree and ask God, what do you want to say to me through this tree? And I'm sitting there eating my salad thinking, and I thought bird watching was boring. <laughs> Tree watching takes it to a whole new level. But before, before let, let, let me be clear here. I am not recommending that you go out in your yard and set up a chair and stare at a tree for an hour. <laughs> it most likely takes like 50 years of practice to get anything out of that. But before we brush this off as the ramblings of some old crazy man, Jesus shouts at us. Whoever has ears, let him hear. And David sings over us, the heavens declare the glories of God and the skies proclaim the works of his hands. And Isaiah says, the trees, they clap their hands. They're trying to get your attention. And the apostle Paul writes to us, creation is groaning as though creation itself is held together by vibrating with the word of God. That if we could just stop, really stop and hear we might hear the voice of God. So we could stop the sermon right here, right? Jesus does with the crowd. That's all they get. They get the story and then he, like, he walks off. And if you and I were truly open to God, if we just listened, that's all we'd need to hear, that story right there. But um, thankfully, the disciples are just as deaf as we are. Verse 9, the disciples asked him, what was that? <laughs> like, well, what are you talking about? What, is that what does that parable mean? And he said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you. 
But to others I speak in parables so that, quoting Isaiah 6, though seeing, they may not see, though hearing, they may not understand. So do you know what midrash is? Have you ever heard that phrase? It's technically, it's a ancient rabbinic form of like Bible study, right? So rabbis, ancient rabbis would get around and they would have little Bible studies. They would discuss the Hebrew text. But um, to call it Bible study isn't quite right. Because the rabbis, when they approached the Hebrew scriptures, they, they did see it as God's word, but they had a markedly different approach. So if our Bible study is like a really good Bible study, it's where we all sit, we open God's word, and that becomes like the cues for us. And then the spirit of God is working in us as we read it, and we see these new highlights and these new layers. If, if, if that, a really good Bible study today would be like, um, like a symphony orchestra playing Pachelbel's canon with each part coming in, fading in, fading out layer over layer. If that's what Bible study is, midrash is more like Miles Davis. It's jazz. It's like you, you can only hear it once because you have to experience it. You, you really probably shouldn't record it or, or write it down or capture it because it's going to be different every single time. It, it's artful. It's playful. So some scholars, they think that this passage, this whole parable that Jesus is telling is that. They think it's midrash. He's a rabbi. And he's come to tell us a story so that we can see Isaiah chapter 6 in a different light. He's quoting the line, though seeing, they may not see. Though hearing, they may not understand. Isaiah chapter 6. And then just four verses later, Isaiah chapter 6 refers to the holy seed that is planted in the land. So it seems like Jesus is working with that image. But however we read this parable, it's worth mentioning that the emphasis on hearing What God is saying is not a new thing. So from page one of the Bible, we get the sense that what God says is a lot, lot bigger than like the words you and I share. So Genesis chapter one, God said, let there be light. And there was light. That he speaks and things are created. Existence itself is caused. It's creative. It it produces things. And then Genesis chapter 12, God says, I will be your God. He swears, he promises, and a new people are formed through this man named Abraham. And then Exodus chapter 1 through 12, God calls his people. He calls to them, and out of Egypt he calls his son. So so these people who were slaves are now set free simply by him calling. Exodus chapter 19, he declares to them, you are my children. And it is so. They are adopted in the family of God by his word. Exodus chapter 20, he gives them 10 commandments. You know what the word for commandments is in Hebrew? Words. He gives them 10 words. Leviticus, he gives them Torah, his, his message. And this Torah, or law, is the guide to the deep, rich fullness of life. Numbers, he, he doesn't give up on them. He says to them, I will never leave you or forsake you, though you are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. You're going to wander through the wilderness, but I'm not going to give up on you. You're going to wander away from me, but I'm not going to let you go. And then Deuteronomy, they're getting ready to head into the promised land. And Moses says to them, He reminds them, man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. That these words that created you, that called you out of slavery, that made you into a people, that are forming your identity right now, this word of God, you need to sustain yourself with it. You need to live on it. You need to cling to it. It is more important to you than the very bread you eat. And then Moses gives us the greatest commandment. The commandment that upon which everything else is hinged. Um, do, do you know it? Do you know the greatest commandment? 
Yeah, yeah. You know it. You guys know that. You know this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, right? And sometimes you add in mind there, depending on what version you do. That's Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. But that's true, but that's not the whole thing. There's actually an introductory line to this that the ancient Jews would always recite with it. And it went like this. Hear! Shema! In Hebrew. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. Now love the Lord your God. And, and for thousands of years, Jews have prayed this every day, usually three times a day, morning, noon, night. The Shema is what it's called. You hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is what they would pray. This is this guide them. This is the heartbeat of their lives. This formed their rhythms. This word, above all other words, this was the word that was to form them, that was to be their daily bread. They were to eat that the way you would eat your food three times a day. And this Shema part, this part about hearing, is not an expendable part. It's a prerequisite to love. It's a prerequisite to life with God. So the biblical scholar, linguist, expert in the parables named Klein Snodgrass points out that there are at least seven layers or seven levels to hearing represented in the Hebrew word Shema. So let me just unpack these very quickly to give you a sense of the depth of what we're talking about when, when, when God says them, hear, O Israel. The first is hearing sounds. That's like your ears are vi- eardrums are vibrating. We all know that. Understanding language, this is where information is actually exchanged there. Simple, basic. Understanding intent. This is where, where even if I don't say it, you get what I mean. You're reading, reading the whole thing together. You're, you're getting it. The, the fourth level is recognizing. So this is when you're in the King of Prussia Mall at Christmas time, and there's literally like a million people in there, and they've got like um, granite and hard surfaces everywhere, so sounds are bouncing everywhere. You can't possibly hear anything. It's just this huge, loud noise of all these people talking. But in the middle of the crowd, if your kid says, Dad, Mom, boom, you can instantly pick that out. Now, what is that? Because our ears are attuned to the voice of the one we love. That's what that is. The fifth level is bird watching, also known as paying attention. This is when you stop, when you really stop, and those things that are right there the whole time, but you couldn't see until you stopped moving when they appear to you. This is when you stop and you really give your full attention to someone, and you see them deeply. You hear them. And if you do that, it leads to the next one, which is agreeing with or believing. This is when you share their perspective, when you feel what they're feeling, when you see the world through their eyes, when you experience what they're experiencing. And if you allow that to seep into your heart, then it leads to what they call here in this in language with God, at least, obedience. This is when what you hear has so taken root in your heart that it changes how you live, it shapes your behavior. You see, Shema, when God says Shema, he's not just talking about listening with your ears. He's talking about a heart issue. Shema invites us to go as deep as we're ready to go, to open up our whole selves to God. It's how you get in on the life with God and how the life of God gets in on you. It's a call to hear the one who has spoken you into existence, who calls you out of slavery, who declares you are my beloved child, who guides you into the deep, rich fullness of life, who refuses to give up on you even when you wander away from him, even when you deny him, and who has sworn, 
I am yours and you are mine. Never will I leave you or forsake you. I'm coming back for you. So hearing that is a prerequisite to experiencing the love of God, which is a prerequisite to being able to love God back, which is the foundation of life with God. But if you've read your Old Testament, we've only made it up to Deuteronomy, you know that the rest of the Old Testament is basically a story of how God's people don't hear any of that. <laughs> it's not that God doesn't speak. I mean, he says it over and over and over again, but they, they seem to not hear any of that or, or they don't care or their heart is so hardened against God that they refuse to hear or they're so distracted that they can't possibly pay attention, whatever the case may be, even though God repeats himself again and again and again, they don't hear it. So 800 years later, in 700 B.C., God finally sends a prophet named Isaiah. And if you haven't read Isaiah chapter 6 recently, that's my gift to you this week. Spend some time in that. It's this fantastic, like, earth-shattering vision where Isaiah enters into the very throne room of God. Like, the earth is shaking, and he's so overwhelmed by the holiness of God that his first reaction is to say, Woe is me! I'm a man of unclean lips, like I can't possibly be in your presence. And then the angel takes a burning coal from the altar, touches his lips. It's like you can almost hear it sizzle. And something about that cleanses him, sets him apart, and he realizes, I'm not worthy, but by grace, God's called me to be a prophet. And then we read, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me, Lord, I, I want to be that voice for you. I want to speak your word to your people. Tell me what message you want me to bring. And he said, go tell this people, be ever hearing, never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull, close their eyes. Now, I want you to appreciate the irony here. God does not literally want his people to not hear him or see him. Isaiah is 66 chapters long. You don't write a book that's 66 chapters long if you have nothing to say, right? God is revealing himself here. Um, this is more like the dynamic between a parent and a child. Like, you know, when you've told your teenage child literally 10 times to do something, but they're either willfully or just through gross neglect not listening to you. So you say to them, I'm going to say this one more time. And I know that you're not going to hear me, but when you don't hear me, this is what's going to happen. That's what this is like. Isaiah chapter 6, God says, I'm going to say this one more time just to prove my point. And then you're going to suffer the consequences. You see, um, this is about more than just being a good listener or following God's commandments. That's not the sense of it at all. It's that apart from the word of God, the very word of God, when you rip yourself away, when you stop listening, opening yourself up to it, you are now separating yourself from the very word that causes existence, that creation itself starts to pull apart, starts to unravel, that your life starts to unravel, you, your life stops making sense. When you pull apart from the word that called you out of slavery, you're easily enslaved to stupid things. Stupid things. You get enslaved to them. They control you. When you pull yourself apart from the word of God that tells you who you really are to your core, gives you your identity, then you no longer know who you are. You lose your identity. When you pull yourself away from the word of God that shows you the way to the deep, rich fullness of life, then you no longer know the way. You're lost. 
And that's what's happening in Isaiah chapter 6. And that's what's happening in our world today. And that's what's happening, scholars believe, in Luke chapter 8. Jesus shows up at this particular crowd on this particular day, and it looks like he's been reading Isaiah because he has an Isaiah moment on his mind, and he's like, that's what I'm here to tell you about today. I'm going to tell you one more time just to prove that this is not from a lack of revelation. This is not a lack of God trying to communicate to you. I mean, he's done everything he can over the course of history again and again and again, and now he sent his very son to tell you this message. It's not for a lack of communicating, it's for a lack of hearing. You aren't listening. So Jesus speaks in parables to prove his point. The very manner in which he speaks is going to discern our hearts. Because this kind of hearing has more to do with your heart than your ears. And that is what this whole parable is about, he says. This is about Isaiah chapter 6. And this is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God, the word that creates all things, that called you out of slavery, that tells you who you are, not just some commandments, not just some words on a page, but the, the, the word that holds all things together and can save you. That's what this word is. That's what the seed is. And those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved because... Um, all they're doing is they're walking on the path. They're just following the script that was handed to them. That if you, all you do in life is just do exactly what everyone else is doing. You don't have to be evil. You don't have to be wicked. Just do what everyone else is doing. Follow that path. Just walk along the way. Your heart will be so hard that the word will bounce right off and the devil will take it away. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it. But they have no root. There's nothing under the surface. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. So it's a Sunday morning, and they hear the message. They're like, yes, I believe that. I believe that I am who God said I am. I believe that I'm set free, that I'm no longer a slave, that I don't have to be that. But then, then a dry spell comes. Life gets hard. Sermon gets boring. AC stops working. And they're like, you know, I don't know if I feel it anymore. I don't know if I really believe it. And in a single dry season, it reveals that they never sunk any roots. It's one inch deep. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures. Anyone? And they do not mature. So they believe, they really do. They, they have roots, they believe, they, they, they believe that they're fully trying to walk in the way of God, that they've given their life to, to Jesus. They really believe it, and they plan on totally sinking into that and following Jesus. But they have a few house projects, just right now, just a couple things, a busy time coming up. And you know, I just got this new thing going on at work. It's a new transition, great opportunity, so excited about that. And my kids, they're involved in 47 extracurricular activities. I wish I was exaggerating, right? And so this week's full, but next week, I think I might have a window of time, but then they get to next week and they're like, oh man, you know what? It's just overflowed. This whole month is shot, maybe next month, and then you get to the next month and they're like, hey, this is just a busy season, but I'm going to get there. And then it gets delayed and delayed. And then finally they say, you know, when I retire, that's when, that's when I'm really gonna follow Jesus and really gonna dig deep into this. 
They believe they do, but they're just too busy to stop, to hear anything. And so they never mature and they never become who God called them to be. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. That they let God's word get buried in their lives and their hearts and their imagination and their daily routines in their hearts. That this word, it grows, and first it grows imperceptibly. You don't see the growth. It grows down. That's where it grows first. It grows roots. It's all below the surface of the word. God loves you, gets planted in your heart, and it sinks its way down, and it wraps itself around the old hurts you have and the shame you have. It starts breaking it up. And then the word, you're no longer a slave. You've been set free from the lies you've been believing. It goes down, and it starts undoing the lies one by one. And the word, you're my child whom I love, it begins to come under the surface and starts strangling out depression, anxiety, lurking fears, all that's beneath the surface. But with time, it grows and grows. Notice the soil does nothing. The soil is just open to the seed. All it has to do is get out of the way. Just be receptive. Let the seed do the work. And then one day, pop, it blooms. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Fruit of the Spirit pops out, and it transforms them and blesses our world. Transforms them, blesses our world. You realize the life of God is at work in them, and in our world, through them. So we get to the end here. I don't know about you, but I've got some serious questions for Jesus. Like, um, does this mean that we should expect three out of every four people to be open to faith? Um, Should we expect that only one out of four are actually going to bear fruit? Does does this, um, the rocky soil, the the one choked by thorns, if you receive the word, like, yes, you really believe, but then you don't have any fruit, are you really following Jesus? Are you really a Christian? Are you saved? And if I've never seen fruit in my life, or not sure if I've seen fruit in my life, um, what does that say about me? Especially since most of the growth happens below the surface for maybe for years before you reach a season where you bear fruit. Like, could I be deceiving myself? Am I saved or not? Like, what does this say? And if, if I'm going through a dry season and it feels like it's never going to end, what if I feel like my life is just too busy and is getting choked by a million little weeds? So we ask our questions, but the only answer we get is verse 16. No one puts a lamp and hides it in a clay jar or puts it under a bed. Instead, they put it on a stand so that those who come in can see the light. Oh, Jesus, why do you make it so hard? His only answer seems to be, I mean, my best interpretation of this is, uh, what am I supposed to do, hide the truth? Just because you don't like it? I'm going to shine a light on it. I'm going to shine a light on it. For there's nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open that who we are and what we are is revealed by how we respond to God's word. Who we are and what we are is disclosed, is revealed by how we respond, how we listen. Therefore, caref- consider carefully how you listen. Whoever has been given more 
Whoever does not, uh, whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they think they have will be taken from them. That if you listen, if you shema, if you stop, really stop and take it in what God is saying to you, then you will hear him more and more and more. You'll start hearing him everywhere. everywhere. Who knows? You might hear him in a tree. Verse 19. Now Jesus' mother and brothers came to him. But they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside and want to see you. And he replied, get this. My mother and brothers are those who hear God's word, Shema, and put it into practice. That if you Shema, if you let God's word root deeply in your heart, if you let it form you from the inside out, you will be closer to Jesus than Mary, the mother of God. That's what he just said. So how do we get in on this life? How do we become this close to Jesus? He tells us quite blatantly, therefore consider carefully how you listen. You need to shema. It is the entryway to life with God and the way to get God's life in you. It's the way you get into God's life and the way God's life gets into you. You don't just understand the words. You don't just master the intent. You learn to recognize God's voice the voice of the one you love. You, you bird watch, you stop, you really stop and you pay attention, you give him your full attention and then you let his word, his promises, what he says of you, penetrate your heart, those deep places of your heart and it changes you from the inside out. So the past couple of summers, I've had the opportunity to spend a week at a retreat center on the front range of the Colorado Rockies. Um, it's, a, it's a monastery out there. And when I first signed up for it, I didn't quite know what I was getting myself into. I was just like, oh, this sounds like a great adventure. Not running with the bulls, but still. Hang out with some monks. This will be awesome. But I go out there, and the first thing I find out is that it's a silent retreat center. As in no one talks. Ever. Like you're sitting there in the cafeteria, and everyone's eating their food, and just like staring at each other like, this is so so when I first got there, it was hard. It was jarring. It's awkward. Like you, you come in there and the silence is deafening. Like something in me, at least, wanted to run back out into the big wide world and be like, hey, I'm going to go stay at the, uh, the Holiday Inn instead next to the mall. <laughs> but but I, I persevered. And by the end of day one, you begin to realize just how much of your life you spend not really listening but distracted by a million things. Thinking about what you're going to say, thinking about the next thing you're going to do, endlessly scrolling through life. But here, all of that is shut off, put away. There's no escaping it, no distractions, nothing to say, nothing to do next. All of the background noise in life was turned way down. And then day two, you realize just how much of your time and energy goes towards managing what other people think of you. But here, these people will never have the opportunity to praise you, thank you, engage with you, laugh at your jokes, say anything to you, period. So the need to manage what other, thing, other people think just fades away. And then day three and four, you begin to enter into a silence unlike anything you might experience in normal life. It's when you start hearing your own heart, when you start to see things going on in your life all around you that have already been there but now you can hear them. 
Here's where you start to hear your own longings, the lies you've been believing. Here's where God starts surfacing the hard places, the rocks in the soil. Here's where God's word can grow. And here's where it's not growing because you won't let it. And that's when the real work of listening begins. And that's when you start to hear God's word in the way that God's word cannot describe. But it doesn't take a week of solitude and silence to enter into this. Um, A few years ago, I taught a course at Eastern University for a couple different semesters, and it was a course in spiritual formation. And easily, my most dreaded assignment was this. I sent the students away. I said, you have to spend a 12-hour block of time in solitude and silence. No phone, no computers, no distraction, no people. And you'd be amazed, almost universally, they described how utterly unthinkable it was to actually leave their phone behind and to actually break out of that. They found it almost unbearable to enter into that time. But when they did, almost universally, they experienced a transformation and healing unlike any other 12-hour block of time they'd experienced all semester. But it doesn't even take 12 hours. Start with two minutes. It's like bird watching. If each day you just stop and really stop and you sit with God's word and then you ask God, what's happening in my own soul? What's happening in my, around me? What are you doing right now? And you listen. I promise you, 120 seconds is a lot longer than you think. It can reveal things that you don't know right now. And it can transform you in ways well, that might surprise you. If you do that for long enough, day after day, you might either spend your time staring at trees or you might find yourself multiplying a hundredfold. So be very careful how you listen. Let's pray. Father, Father, I, I just want to pray Samuel's prayer. Lord, speak. Your servant is listening. Speak, Lord. Speak to us. Where there are hard places that we won't let your word in, Lord, point it out to us. Break through that. Smash the pavement in our lives. Break the rock. And where there are weeds, we need to weed our gardens, Lord, and make that obvious and give us the grace carry through that. And for those of us going through a dry spell right now, Lord, I pray that you'd be gracious to us. God, we we want to be a people who are transformed, and we pray that your word would sink deeply into us, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.